the Germans after that just sort of return to port um, because they can't really continue to operate on the seas um, and they weren't able to deliver a decisive like victory on the British so they weren't really able to break out they, they just sort of met them in a stalemate um, both one to a degree that they could claim it was a victory Steve, would but you it call wasn't that, a meaningful victory would you call that a German exit? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh man, I'm just trying to get some some good humor in there for our boy Cuffy Max, who gave us a one star on the iTunes. <laughs> Welcome back to the Trilateral Troika. This is Steve, along with the other Steve. Yoregelt. And Ryan. Mmm, Crown Royal Apple. I hope that came in on your recording, because all I heard was Discord latency. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I didn't. Unless that's what you opened. Like, <laughs> did you just open a modem? Um, by the way, uh, this is disgusting. Don't don't waste your money on this. But you just held it up to your camera and said, get this. No, I said, I said look at it. It's disgusting. Oh, yeah. Is it bad? It's horrible. Yeah. Now, now, Ryan, I've got some bad news. They are our official sponsor, and you will be forced to drink them every episode yeah. going forward bitch. for the next yep. six months. Yep. I mean, I'll take Crown Royal as a sponsor, sure. Crown Royal! If you want to get drunk and be Canadian, Crown Royal. <laughs> I was actually recently watching um, old television, like from the 40s, like post-war television mm-hmm. on YouTube, because they had these, like, these like skit almost it's like 30 seconds of television it never goes into the actual bits right and i think yeah. one of the things that was fascinating about it was the ads you know and i, I thought of ryan when we, when i was watching it because i thought of his, his ad voice you know oh, where you're talking yeah. about like your radio ad voice i was like oh but i was like oh that's great but then i was watching it and i was like man you know all these people that are like it's like starring jeff ackerman and i'm like who the fuck is that? Like, and it was every show. Like, it wasn't like Fred Astaire or yeah. like you know uh, Ethel Kennedy. It was a, <laughs> it was like it was just always some fucking person I've never heard of. And I'm like, man, they had their moment in the sun, I guess. Well, Jackie Winchester in <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jackie uh, Winchester. Oh, she was wonderful back in the forty sevens, nineteen forty sevens. Speaking of people that I've never heard of. Winston yes. Churchill? <laughs> um, so this week we'll be talking about, we'll start talking about Winston Churchill. Who? The, the famous British prime minister and statesman, best known from meme pictures that you conservative relative post on Facebook. Best known uh, by Churchill Solitaire on the iOS app store. <laughs> a devious form of solitaire. Said to be played which by Churchill himself. The, yeah, which was actually the form he would play in the uh, the war room. Yep. My my uncle, or not my uncle, my grandfather referred to as him as Jowly. So, take he, that he was. He was, Brit- he was British Mitch McConnell, right? Yeah. <laughs> We shall never surrender. <laughs> uh, He'd have the look of like a very jowly dog. <laughs> there's this like, old like an uh, English bulldog. Yeah, there's this old uh, Polish guy that used to hang out with me. Rest in peace, Sherlock. And uh, 
he used to hang out at my my house and watch us when my mom would be out and stuff. And uh, he's just this big fat dude, and he would do this impression of Winston Churchill. It was fucking amazing, dude. Oh, yeah. oh man. Oh, it was so good. He did Winston Churchill, and he did Eisenhower. He was so old that he bat boy. He was a bat boy for Babe Ruth when Babe Ruth was in Trenton. What? Babe, Babe Ruth played baseball in Trenton, and he was a bad boy for Babe Ruth. Yeah, Yo, and it was a real, it was a real story. Multiple people confirmed the story that were his age uh-huh. when I lived in Trenton as a kid. And on top of that, I've looked it up in the past like five years, and Babe uh-huh. Ruth played in baseball in Trenton, New Jersey. So like, That's believable. Everything yeah. lines up. Uh, Winston Churchill. He was born on November thirtieth, eighteen seventy four. Um. At Blenheim Palace, um, which is in um, Oxfordshire, England, um, and that was the uh, the estate of the Dukes of Marlborough, which, um, yeah, they have which his his father, uh, Lord Randolph Churchill, um, was the younger son of the seventh Duke of of Marlborough. Now, I've I've heard that the Marlboroughs have bad breath. Is that true? <laughs> That's not true. They're always refreshing. Well, for your health, I just wanted to well. see if either of you got my Final Fantasy joke, but of course, <laughs> I just went straight to cigarettes. I was actually curious <laughs> if the Marlboros were known for lung cancer, but that was just uh, well, you know, Ryan, uh, cigarettes don't actually cause cancer, and if it wasn't for cigarettes, we wouldn't even have America. So you just shut up. <laughs> uh, causation is not correlation. Yeah, that was my uh, that was my Uncle Louie. Rest in peace, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Um, his mother was an American, um, and his his father was a um, was a prominent uh, Tory politician, much as Churchill uh, Winston would become later on in life. So I'm not I'm not big up on uh, British politics, but how old are the Tories as a as a political organization? They are pretty old. Okay, um, I thought they were the, I the, thought they were new. So it's glad a good thing I'm asking. <laughs> I thought they were like 20th the, century. The the Labour Party is is much newer. Oh, that would make sense, right? Are they socially aligned? Like the la- socialists aligned Labor Party? Because when you say labor, I think worker and... Uh, originally, but uh, around the time of the 90s, um, they became more of like a neoliberal party. Ugh, there we go. Like, Jeremy Corbyn is sort of a... Um, Throwback. Sort of an example. Well, he's sort of an example of like a, like a, a socialist Labor Party like holdover. Like he's one of the few true laborites. Okay. Um, but yeah, the the Tory Party has existed since seventeen or sixteen seventy eight. Mm. Okay. Originally, nice. or or as they were called, but eventually, um, they they are succeeded by uh, the Conservative Party, which is called um, the Tories, and it being officially called the Conservative Party started in eighteen thirty four. Um, so they're old, long story short. Yes. Okay. So they're they're the older of the two. The Labour Party is much more uh, modern, um, uh, being originally a socialist party. Um, Churchill uh, attended, as a youth, he attended the Harrow School, which is one of those um, fancy um, English um, like boarding school type schools like Eton. Yeah. Yep. Um, he, while he was at uh, Harrow School, he his grades weren't really that great. Um, but, um, his, his father, you know, wanted to prepare him for a military career. Right. Um, and, and so in his last three years of the school, um, he attended it in what is called the, uh, the army form, 
which is more of a like a military um, school type format. I might be jumping ahead, but did he actually ever have any military service? Yes. Oh yeah. Um, oh he, yeah. He would go on for college. He would um, he would attend the Royal Military College, um, Sandhurst. Okay. Um, and so it him getting into Sandhurst was was not like a sure thing. Um, he had tried two times um, unsuccessfully to get in, um, but he was able to get into the uh, the military academy on his third time. Look at this like anime protagonist. Uh, is that okay? That's Churchill, no. dude. Yeah, that's that's young Churchill from when he was in the, the uh, military. So, do you want to know what I get immediate vibes of as Japanese emperor? Yeah, he does kind of look like a Japanese emperor. Yeah, I get immediate emperor vibes. Yeah, nah, he was a good-looking guy when he was a kid, and then he ate a lot of fish and chips. <laughs> <Holy> <laughs> he took a lot, sorry, of, a lot of scotch, a lot of crisps, a lot of crisps. Yeah. <laughs> um. And when he was accepted into the uh, military academy, because it is a, a military academy, he was essentially joining the military. Um, so he officially began his career um, when admitted into the academy in the British Army in 1893. Um, he he began as a cadet in the uh, Cavalry Corps. Um, and after entering in September of, of 1893... Um, he would graduate um, in 1895, um, soon after, um, uh, it, or he would um, he would graduate around 1895, uh, which is around the time that his father died. Um, his father died in January of 1895. Now, did he do better in the military wing than he did in the school wing? Um, I I'm not really sure. They don't yeah. really talk about it, but I I'm pretty sure he probably didn't. Um, yeah. Well, you know, school's not for everyone. I mean, I think that's a big thing that in the 20th century we definitely have learned. I'd like to give a shout out to my boy Mike Rowe. <laughs> <laughs> right, hang on. Oh, hang man. Hang the fuck on. School is absolutely a necessity up until at least you get to college. Like, no, I mean, some uh, form of higher education. No, you're, no, you're absolutely right. I'm just, I'm literally being sarcastic. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you threw a Mike Rowe at the end. I was like, oh, okay, all right, be a dick. Nah, school's <laughs> important. I think that um, I think that at that time, though, school was definitely uh, one of those things where, like, if you were a rich kid, you just went and did fuck all. Like, you didn't care. Oh, yeah. You know, dude, so much money was coming me. in, relationship status and stuff. You could fake it, you know? Yeah, you went to some foreign island, killed a bunch of natives, threw a flag down. Whoa, like, whoa. Hey, I'm awesome. We'll, we'll get to that. Um but what, what yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Listen, we know he did it. I'm just saying that was the that was the posh thing to do. Yeah, because because you have to remember that like being the son of well, he's not really the son of a lord. He's like within a lord's family. Like people talk about the British royal family, like that is the like while they are at the top of like the the pyramid of of nobility. Like the area where Churchill was in is sort of like the optimum area where you can like be your own self. And you can still have, like, all the privilege and resources to do it. Whereas, like, right. if you're a member of the British royal family, you're, you're sort of stuck in, like, a golden cage. It's a catch-22. Yeah. 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 But, but when you're someone like Churchill, when you come from that level of prestige and privilege that's just below the cutoff line, like, he can be a politician, he can be a military man, you know, he can do all of these things um, and, and sort of live his life as he chooses... Like for instance, his father marries an American woman. So he's, um, he's which, Lord Lord Grantham. 
Yeah, in a sense. I, fu- like, I fucking love that Meg- show, by the way. Meg- I what? absolutely love that show. <laughs> um, so, while um, he after he graduates from the Academy in 1896, um, he's transferred to um, Bombay, uh, today Mumbai, um, in British India. Um, and he would take part in battles Sh- in what is now today Pakistan. Shout out to my boy Akalesh in uh, Mumbai. Mumbai? I haven't talked to him in 17 years, but he was this dude in, in Mumbai that I used to have to do tech support for at 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Amazing. Um, not long after this, in 1898, um, he would fight in engagements in um, Sudan um, as an officer in, in the cavalry. Um, and, and after this, he would leave... Um, the British Army, and in 1899, um, he would take part in the Second uh, Boer War in South Africa as a newspaper reporter. Ah, oh, yeah, that's uh, that's right before Sergeant, right? <laughs> I was gonna say as a fucking reporter. Wait a minute, what? <laughs> that's uh, right before Sergeant. You're a newspaper reporter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because he he leaves the army. He becomes a, a newspaper reporter, traveling to. Um, Traveling to South Africa, where there, um, his his train is is essentially derailed by uh, boars, and he is um, motherfucker, and, and he is captured by them. Um, after being interred in a prisoner of war camp, um, he's able to escape um, and make his way back um, to the British lines by essentially um, like sort of hiking there and then stowing away on a train. Okay, yeah, just like you do in twenty twenty one. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is that in his early life, um, Winston Churchill, or as he is more douchingly known as the Right Honorable Sir Winston Churchill, I like that. Was not a bad dude. Like in his very early life, do you think you could die and get that title like posthumously without being at least partially a douchebag? <laughs> no, absolutely. Not. The Right Honorable no. um, Sir. He he also the takes part in some. He also takes part in some other um, conflicts, um, like for instance, he's in Cuba um, observing with the Spanish during the Spanish-American War, um, yeah. stuff like that. <clears throat> he was, initi- he was actual- initiated into the Abaqua with Joey Diaz. Yeah, <laughs> um, and and fucking WW one, <laughs> World War OG style. But after um, after the, his escape, he sort of becomes a, a celebrity in Great Britain, um, and he would sort of build up his own uh, popularity by writing a, um, a a book about his time in the war called London to Ladysmith via uh, Pretoria, um, which is his like account of him going into the war, his escape, and then his return to British lines. Um, he does a lot of this mostly um, as a form of like self promotion and propaganda. Um, because in 1900, um, he becomes a, a politician in the Conservative Party and is elected to Parliament. Wow. That's a quick rise. I mean, he graduated yeah. in 1895, right? So five uh, years I, later, he's in Parliament? Yeah. Because um, you have to remember, his father was a parliamentarian. Okay. So it's just sort of that political dynasty type it's thing. Okay. Yeah, it's called nepotism. The yeah, dynasty. Don't church it up. It's but called nepotism. Don't church hill it it's up. Like the Kennedys. But I think that <laughs> don't, don't church hill it up. It's but called I, nepotism. Yeah, but I think like at the time, wasn't I, I'm not trying to uh, wipe it away. I just want to like contextualize it. But like at the time, weren't most politicians in some way connected to a previous class of politicians? 
Yes, of course. Almost, yeah, almost um, all it, of them, it's beginning right? to change during this time period. Sure. Um, as as more and more, like for instance, like the Labour Party, um, right? Just just sort of like non non aristocratic people are beginning to become politicians, right? Because because remember, like when Parliament is set up, it is not set up for the common people. It's set up for the like lords and minor like nobility. Yeah, like if you didn't have a big rich dick, you weren't getting in there. <laughs> Because like you have right? you have the House of Lords, which is appointed by the monarch. Like you're 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 not voted for. <clears throat> you're chosen by the monarch, um, and then you have the, um, the House of Commons, which even though they call it the House of Commons, there's still you know lords and sirs in it. Isn't the uh, it was John Oliver I think taught me about it that you can't take footage of the House of Lords and like mock it. Or something like that on British television, or like it can't be used for comedic purposes. Yeah, you you can't you cannot um, you cannot use video from Parliament and sort of do like uh, use it for like comedic purposes or like a spoof or something like that. Is that only um, in England or is that? Everywhere? That's only in the UK. Okay, it's I was not, gonna say because if it's everywhere, I'm doing this like tonight. As soon as we're done, I'm throwing it on, and I will start my Twitch stream, my long dead Twitch fucking account. They're they're not like Thailand, where in Thailand, um, they they have some of the harshest, um, les uh, majesty laws in the world. Where if you insult the royal family of like Thailand, like you can be like go to trial in absentia and be sentenced and like, you know, have like a. A, a sizable like jail sentence waiting like, for you. A, like, you wait, would they send like a Thai hit squad to come kill me? Probably not that, but like no. if you ever step foot in Thailand, they might. Uh, I bet you Thai, they, probably uh, thai you jails. Jail. I bet you Thai jails smell of peanuts. You know. I bet you they taste amazing food though. Right. Like, they feed amazing food. I like that we both went to food for our arguments. <laughs> Every time I know, like if I'm in an Asian restaurant and like you're in an Asian restaurant, what type of Asian restaurant is it? And I'll be like. Peanuts. We're in Thailand. Thailand. <laughs> that peanut sauce, which this is around the time that um, that pad Thai comes into existence. <laughs> oh, for, oh what? you motherfucker! How did you know? Yeah, that? <laughs> because uh, pad Thai is like, pad thai. A, it's somewhat of a modern um, invention. It, it was it was sort of concocted as a unifying dish. For, I like I like, like a quasi modern uh, nation of Thailand, which Thailand is not like a modern nation it's actually like a feudal monarchy despite its trappings of having like a parliament you mean in 2021 yeah in 2021 okay, like, just like thailand sure is still that. thailand is still very much not that much different from say like politically from like england in like 1500 in in terms of how like the politics are <sighs> goddamn for real to quote george, yeah like to quote george it, it's Carlin, a lot of- we're gonna go to mars <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna go to Mars. <laughs> I didn't realize Thailand was that like oppressive. Yeah, like I think you uh, mean until very recently they would they would often have like military coups against like the government when they when they felt that the government was being too you know liberalizing. Liberal. Yeah, yeah, that sounds um, about right. All right, so he's so, in Parliament. Um, eventually in 1904. Um, he switches over to what's called the uh, the Liberal Party, which was another political party, um, which is not which is not to say like a precursor to the Labour Party. It's just sort of like 
very similar to the conservative party, but different. <laughs> it was basically set up as a B option for the A option haters. <laughs> yeah, like they they felt certain ways on on like they they didn't share exactly the same platforms, but it's still like a conservative political party. Oh, so once but, are we talking about the United States again? Because no, yeah, like. Are like we? not not to that sense, but just for the fact of like people say that like the Republican Party should be two parties, like one of them is like the fascist political party and the other one is like the OG Republican Party, which is just like the, the conservative like you know, types. Like the, the, the George W. Bush types as opposed to like the Donald Trump like populist fascist types. The Donald Trump's the Ronald Reagan's those, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, eventually, though, he'll, he'll go back to the Conservative Party in 1924. Um, he, he'll also marry his uh, wife, uh, Clementine um, uh, Hosier, in uh, 1908. Um, and eventually they would have five children, um, Diana, Randolph, Sarah, Marigold, and Mary. That's a pretty in, name. In 19- Marigold's a pretty name. In 1911, um, Lord Asquith becomes uh, Prime Minister... Um, and he appoints uh, Winston Churchill to be the Lord of the Admiralty. Um, and at that time, you know, he would take up his official residency um, at the Admiralty House. Um, and he would spend his time sort of focusing on um, sort of preparing the Navy for war, um, sort of modernizing the Navy and, and sort of um, bolstering them up. So he so, was basically head of the Navy. Yes. Uh, he, like... Um, they used to have, um, in the United States, you know, it would be like, um... The Secretary they, of the Navy. They used, they, yeah, they would have the Secretary of the Navy and the Secretary of the Army, um, which eventually got combined into the Secretary of War. Um, the same is true in Great Britain. By the way, I disagree with that. I think the more people you have in the room when you're discussing military operations, the better. Well, I, I, I think they're... to a point, but yes, I agree. I, I think the reason why they changed that... No, Ryan, because... I, I'm going to interrupt Steve. I want as many people in the room as possible, and the reason <laughs> I want them in there is so they never decide on anything, ever. So that we never go to war. But anyway, Steve, what you're saying, the reason they changed it? <laughs> well, it would it would be the opposite, because you'd have more military men in the room who want to go to war. No, but um, I'm saying that if you... I'm just saying, statistically, if you increase the number of people in an argument the time it takes to get to a resolution must go up most of the time. The, the uh, Pretty much the reason why they changed it was to get rid of like inter-service rivalries where like they, they would just be at odds with each other. So they just made one person that would have to manage, you know, all the branches of the military, um, especially considering like, like around that same time is when we break off the air force from both the Navy and the army. Okay. Because originally, like, during World War II, there is no Air Force. Yeah, it's Army Air Corps. Yeah, you're either in the Army or you're in the Navy, like... And then after World War II, they they sort of break off the main components of those and merge them into the modern Air Force. Hmm. Um, And not to mention, you have, like, the the Marine Corps, which is still technically part of the Navy, but it's not. And it it just turns into this whole sort of complicated mess. Um, So, for about two and a half years... Um, Churchill is focusing on getting the British Navy, you know, prepared um, for a possible future war with Germany. Um, he visits um, different naval stations and dockyards, um, sort of seeks to improve the morale of the, the sailors, and just sort of, like, observes intelligence on uh, the German Navy. 
what year are we in right now? This is uh, 1911 to uh, up to the start of World War One. Okay, so we're talking. Uh, okay, we're talking WW one. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Germany passes this law um, called the Navy Law, um, which is to increase their naval uh, warship production because they want to challenge the British. Um, Germany during this like sort of period when it when it first comes into existence in the late 1800s wants to build an empire. But it's sort of stuck in the state where most of like most of the other extant empires have already taken all the good areas, um, which we talked about previously. Um, so Germany, uh, much like Italy, um, the these sort of new nations are sort of left with the scraps, and Germany even more so. Um, I really just want it, to point out that Germany trying to, to to take naval supremacy from England. England, which had like the strongest navy in the history of ever up to this point, yeah, and Germany, who has access to exactly one ocean, if I'm not mistaken, right? They're they're landlocked to three sides, right? Well, not if you ask them, but <laughs> uh, it's listen aspirations, okay? Hats off. Look, you got goals. Shoot for the moon, okay? But I, I trust the process. <laughs> White boys, white those boys, diamond, summer. Those, those, those diamond, those diamond hands holding those warships. Oh <laughs> Good luck to you, because you got the uh, British. They're like sixteen-year-olds that are like captaining British warships. I don't think the Germans want to fuck with these people. <laughs> we're talking about World War One here and about how bad Germany got fucked, right? Is that what we're saying? Well, well, no. This is sort of the build-up to World War One. Oh, like there's an arms race, and Germany is saying that it's going to increase warship production. And Churchill, in response, vows that you know Britain is going to do the same. And he says that for every warship that Ger- that the Germans build, that Great Britain is going to build two. Also, England island surrounded by water. I like their odds. They got the experience, um, and that that weighs heavy. Churchill also um, invited the Germans. Um, to, to sort of, like, de-escalate the naval building projects as well. On top of this, um, sort of trying to form, like, a form of, like, detente and de-escalation, we're saying, you know, that if they stop building as many warships, the British will stop building as many warships. Uh, but the Germans refuse this. Hmm. Huh. Um, I which, which is very like, as presented, or if it was more like, hey, stop building warships. Well, well, no, it's exactly like, you know, the Soviet Union and the United States, where, like, they would make, like, the SALT treaties, where they would agree to stop building nuclear weapons. But the case is, you know, that a warship isn't capable of destroying the world, so you don't really have as much of an incentive to, like, come to the table and be Uh, like, yeah, we we should probably slow down. I think if you ask the Japanese about the Yamato... Uh, well, if you look at the at the at the Yamato's war effort or uh, war war history, you know awful. it was yeah. Listen, all, it all, of, all of the dreadnought class battleships have terrible records. Maybe it's because I played a lot of StarCraft, but it's not Yamato. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it could be Yamato. Okay, uh, it, right, it, right, it would I, it would definitely technically it would be Yamato. Yeah, because all Japanese words are made up of consonant blends, so. Yamato, arigato, gozaimasu. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> the, it would be Yamato because I think all Japanese A's are pronounced ah, ah, i u e o. I think is. The way. Yeah. Anyway, I gave up on Japanese, but I remember that. Um. So, as as he's sort of um, minister of the navy, um, he 
he pushes, you know, for the soldier. Uh, Winsu de no Chocha Hiru. That's how you say his name in Japanese. Um, so he would he would push, you know, for the sailors to get higher pay, that they would have more recreational facilities. What? Um, and that the and for the navy to also focus on building. They should build a um, navy union. Is what they should do. And a new a new sort of um, a, a new sort of type of ship, a submarine. Um, he also it's he also like a his, ship, but not above the water, below it. <laughs> this one's bloody bloody idiot. It's like oh, what's all this then? He's like, there's a ship here. Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> oh, it's under. It's under the water. No, I believe it. Got you right there when your knickers were down. Got the bloody Germans. Got them. (laughs) Got them when their knickers were down. Jesus. Um, So he he also uh, pushes for the uh, for a a new focus on the Royal Naval Air Service and for them to make um, sort of naval aircraft um, for military purposes. Because at that time um, there wasn't really that much use of planes by the Navy. Um, and he also coined the term uh, seaplane, um, which are those those planes with pontoons that can land in the water. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he ordered that a hundred of them be constructed. Mm. Okay. Um, so while he's doing this, um, some members of the Liberal Party objected to uh, how much money that the Navy is spending at this time. Um, and in December of 1913, um, he threatened to resign um, if his proposal for new battleships in the following uh, budget year of 1914 to 1915 was rejected. Um, but in, in June of 1914, he convinced the House of Commons um, to, um, to authorize uh, the government to purchase um, 51% shares um, in oil produced by the Anglo-Persian Oil Company um, in order to secure um, the oil um, access for the Royal Navy. Okay. Hmm. Um, so, so he's advocating, you know, for more naval spending. He's also advocating um, for sort of the resources that the navy needs in order to operate. From uh, advocating the British government. Yeah, as as the minister of the navy, you know, he's going to Parliament. He's telling them, you know, this is what we need. We need more money. Yep, I got it. <laughs> um, and and one of the big questions at this time. Um, the Irish question um, comes up. Um, <laughs> Here we go. Here we um, go. Um, and, and in nineteen twelve, the Hibernian um, affair. Lord Lord Asquith's government. Well, actually, it's called the the Irish question. Um, in Excuse in sort me? of like the political talk of the time. Excuse me. It's called the Irish question. The Irish question never listen. Sounds like never, a stereotype. It sounds like the Irish exit. You know, there's never. <laughs> fuck you! I've done the Irish exit. I have done the Irish exit so many times that I referred to it as the like Jersey exit. Like I stopped calling it. I just took my own stereotype and called it that. You listen, know? N- never in the history has the blank question ever referred to anything fucking good, ever. The Jewish well, yeah, question, well, yes. the Indian question. Like, come on. Well, yeah, yeah that's is, true. It is but bad. And what about it, the last question by Isaac Asimov? <laughs> <laughs> but if if Great Britain hadn't gone to World War One, it was very likely that the the quote unquote Irish question would have caused Great Britain to go into a civil war. Steve, can you can you give me the Irish question? 
Should they be a, a separate nation or not? Okay. You goddamn um, we can. Shuck your law. So, uh, Asquith... Uh, oh, black and uh, tans. Asquith's... We'll, we'll talk about them. Asquith's government um, introduces um, what's called the Home Rule Bill. Um, and, and this is sort of giving um, sort of uh, Ireland its own parliament, sort of giving them uh, more of an ability to, to sort of decide things for themselves, which Churchill supported... Um, and he also urged um, Ulster Unionists to accept it, um, as he didn't want Ireland to be partitioned. It's like the regular uh, parliament, but you can drink in it. <laughs> <laughs> and with we'll fight. Some uh, of us call it the potato parliament. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh my God, I just lost all goodwill I had with the Irish people. And, and uh, Churchill would also increase... Um, the naval presence or around Ireland um, to deal with a potential unionist uprising um, against the Home Rule Bill. Okay. Um, Uni- so, uni- uh, unionist, explain that. Is that a so is that a labor unionist, uprising? No, unionists are the the Northern Irish. Okay. Um, from Ulster. Okay. Who want to remain a part of the United Kingdom? They're the ones who are currently mad at the 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 British government over um, leaving the EU, not because they want to be in the EU. But because they they don't have a hard border with Ireland. All I think of when you say Ulster is the Ulster saga of Irish lore, like you know Finn McCool and Cuchulain and all that stuff. Every time you say Ulster, I'm like, are we doing an episode on that? Let's do it. They're they're also known as loyalists too. They're the ones yes. that want to stay with the UK, whereas Republican in Ireland is actually referring to a yeah. unified Ireland. Sinn Fein was it called yes. Sinn Fein then? Yep. Yes. Uh, okay. Yes, okay, but in, yeah. It's it's complicated, but yes, sure. Um, so Churchill um, Churchill sort of wants to make a compromise, so he suggests that um, Ireland remain a part of sort of a federalized United Kingdom. Um, but this makes other members of the Liberal Party angry, and it also angers um, Irish nationalists who want Ireland to be a, a separate, independent country. Goddamn right. I mean, sure, right? I mean, like it's gonna. There's no way out of that. So as as World War One breaks out, um, Churchill is is sort of takes over um, Britain's naval war effort, um, and this beginning, of course, in August of 1914, um, he has um, 120,000 uh, British troops transported to France, um, and he also begins a blockade of the German North Sea ports. Um, this blockade of of Germany sort of uh, remains um, for almost the entirety of the war. Wow. So from till 1918 yeah okay wow like that that's the reason like when we talked about um like sort of the revolution of of 1919 um and 1920 that that sort of like up to that point you know the germans are are essentially starving by the end of the war because they can't they they have no naval um sort of way of getting in supplies like no (laughs) no transport ships are coming in no supply ships um, the hey, British are intercepting hey, them or sinking them. Hey, and they thought they wanted to take on the British in a naval supremacy battle, right? <laughs> well, well, the problem is is that they, they sort of do go toe-to-toe with the British at the Battle of Jutland, um, which is an inconsequential battle because it, in the sense that both of them claim victory in the battle. Um, and then the, the Germans after that just sort of return to port um, because they can't really continue to operate on the seas. 
um, and they weren't able to deliver a decisive like victory on the British, so they weren't really able to break out. They, they just sort of met them in a stalemate, um, both won to a degree that they could claim it was a victory, <laughs> Steve, would but you it call wasn't that, a meaningful victory. Would you call that a German exit? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm just trying to get some, some good humor in there for our boy, Cuffy Megs, who gave us a one star on iTunes. <laughs> Three guys with topical knowledge of the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Suck my ass, Cuffy. Um, so, uh, Churchill would also, you know, send submarines to bolster up the Russian Navy. Um, and, and he would also send Marines um, to, to Ostend um, to, to sort of uh, force the Germans to, to move their troops. Steve, was the submarine a British innovation? It, it was not a British innovation. Um, both the British and the Germans had submarines as well as the Americans. It was just something that had existed since the 1800s that was gradually being made into what we consider the modern submarine. So the it Russians... was definitely the British who came up with the idea for the submarine, though. Was it? But yeah, but yeah like like in like the 1700s. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. It was a British guy that did it, and I, if I'm not mistaken, like the Dutch had something to do with it as well, or maybe the guy had some Dutch in him. It was it was it was sort of one of those things <laughs> no, where it was, wasn't like was a concerted. <laughs> Do you have any Dutch? It, it wasn't a concerted <laughs> government effort to to sort of like there wasn't like a submarine program in that regard like we need to make a ship that goes under the water like they, they've got like the Mad Men style pitch meeting and then he has like a ship and it's oh, like it's sitting right. on top of like blue glass or whatever and then he says but what if this could do this and then he puts it underneath the glass and everybody just like a couple people like stand up and like stumble back like like this man's mad <laughs> what are you thinking so I was kind of right um, it was a British guy that made the actual first, like, design, but the Dutch were the first to actually build it. A guy named Cornelius Drebbel. Wow, that is a great fucking name. It is. I'm kind of jealous. Now, if it was Cornelius Drebbel, I would start making naked gun references. I would say, like, Frank Drebbel? Yeah. I thought it was Cornelius The the body condom reference came up in a conversation organically yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Um... So, uh, Churchill, during the war in September, he, he assumes full responsibility for the aerial defense of um, Great Britain. Did you say the Aryan defense? Um, what? What? Aerial. Aerial. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And in, in October, um, he would also visit um, Antwerp, um, which and, and observe sort of the defenses of the city that was being besieged by the Germans. Um, and, and he promised them that British reinforcements would, would come to bolster the city, um, but these reinforcements um, never materialize. Huh. Um, wait, German, he, wait, wait, German, wait, 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 wait. He promised, wait, he promised the Germans? No, he promised the Belgians. Oh, okay. He promised the Belgians that British reinforcements would come because the Germans are sieging the city. Um what and, kind of what kind of promise ha- was that? Was it a like a vocal thing where like he let them down well, he said, nationally? Like, I'm, or? Well, he said, "I'm going to work to get you get you reinforcements," but he wasn't able to get the commitment. Okay. Okay. Um, so, w- what had happened was that the Germany had invaded uh, Belgium, uh, and that in the city of of Antwerp, 
um, the the Belgian army and a British Royal Naval Division um, had had sort of been holding down the city, which was under siege, um, after the Germans had made it in August of 1914. Um, so the the city itself was ringed with uh, with forts, um, which was referred to as the National Redoubt. Um, and so the Germans were besieging it from the south and the east. Okay. Um, the the Belgians had, had sort of tried to break the the German um, siege um, in late September and October, um, which did interrupt the Germans' um, plans to sort of send more troops to France, um, but they weren't able to really break out. Okay. Eventually, what would happen is that in September uh, 28. Um, 28th of 1914, uh, the Germans would bring in um, heavy and super heavy artillery and bombard the city. What, um, what is super heavy artillery? It's like, heavy artillery. Like railroad carried like cannons. It's like, like a like, little bit like, over a certain weight. <laughs> like like a giant, like, you know, you know, they have like those railroad guns, which is like the giant cannon that's just like on a railroad car. Jeez. Okay, first of all, Jesus Christ, let me finish that. No, I didn't know that was a um, thing. Imagine, never seen imagine a cannon. Imagine a cannon the size of like a semi trailer. Yeah. yeah like yeah, and, and, and possibly bigger in some cases. Yeah. But just something like that. Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ, dude. Yeah. Um so the there's no real hope of the of the Belgians um sort of like being able to weather this assault now that the Germans have brought in their heavy artillery. Um, and so, um, they eventually, um, a Royal Naval, uh, division does, um, come in, um, uh, eventually in October the 3rd, but the Germans are able to, um, penetrate the outer rings of the, of the city and, and they're able to sort of take it. Okay. Um, and, and when the Germans begin to take the west of the city, um, along the, the Dutch border, um, the... The Belgians, um, some Belgians are able um, to to sort of uh, move into uh, the Netherlands where they spend the rest of the war um, sort of under um, imprisonment. Um, they're, they're interred there along with British soldiers. Okay. Um, because the Netherlands is neutral. Okay. Um, but uh, a number of troops are able to withdraw um, to the Isar River, um, which is along the French border, and they, uh, they dig in. Um, and they begin the sort of defense of this last pocket of Belgium, um, and this is referred to as the Battle of, of the Isser, um, which begins um, in October uh, of 1914 and goes into November of 1914. Um, the Belgian army unit there, or the group there, will, will sort of last out until 1918 um, when they sort of participate in the Allied liberation of Belgium. So for four years, this like this group of like the last remnants of the Belgian army who aren't like being interred in the Netherlands, um, they they sort of um, hold out in this like corner of Belgium until the rest of the Allies are able to push the Germans out of France and then begin pushing further into Belgium and eventually um, towards Germany. Huh. So when when Antwerp falls. Um, Churchill is, is criticized for this in the press. Um, and, and Churchill defends himself saying, you know, that um, his, his sort of um, focus um, on Antwerp had, had helped um, the, the Allies to secure um, northern France and protect uh, Calais and Dunkirk. Dunkirk! Oh, 
that's a good movie. It is. Um, I haven't seen it. Oh, you should watch it. It's a good movie. Why? It's it's just an excellent war movie. It's it's like a, I it's watched like an a horror I watched movie. an excerpt of uh, Fury, and man, that looked like shit. That looked like a shit movie. Fury was actually really good too. <laughs> was it I really? Was yeah, it's like a Saving Private Ryan type movie. Ah, I was very okay. impressed with Shia LaBeouf in Fury. Who? Who's that? Do you mean Shia LaBeouf? Shia LaDuke. <laughs> oh <laughs> man. Uh, Churchill will Actual eventually be cannibal. part of Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> Churchill will eventually be part of um, Lord Asquith's um, War Council. You know, you keep um, you keep bringing up this Lord Asquith dude, and I just gotta say, I hope I'm speaking for everyone here, but nobody gives a shit about this guy. Um, <laughs> which which contains um, which contains uh, uh, Lloyd George, Edward Gray, uh, General Kitchener. Yeah, Lloyd George. <laughs> oh, okay, Lloyd. I thought he's a boy, George. Damn, he's old as fuck. Lloyd Braun. <laughs> <laughs> Lloyd Braun. Um. <laughs> so uh, Churchill, during this time, will put forward uh, different proposals for the war effort, um, including the development of the tank, um, and he also offers to finance the development of the tank um, with uh, admiralty funds. What are admiralty funds? Yeah, but can, just the funds of his office, like but, part of the budget for the admiralty. But can okay. but can he? Like, is he gonna fail? Like he did with but with Belgium. I don't trust. He can do whatever he wants. He's like the well, they do. Right? They they are first to build the tank, and the tank does you know make a make a colossal effect on the war effort. Mm. Yeah, uh, like the Germans the eventually develop them, but the the tank is like a is like a big sort of breaker in the stalemate of trench warfare because. You know, the tank can push across the lines, it's not taken out by machine gun fire, and soldiers can, can sort of, like, run behind it. Hmm. You never played Battlefield 1? Tank? Huge game changer. So, I haven't played uh, Battlefield 1. That's one of those games I really wanted to play. Every time I saw it, I was like, this is right up my alley, and I just never got it. I'm going to tell you now, um, Battlefield 1 is fucking great. I've heard that, and- yeah. The person I got a lot of ga- I got a lot of games going on right now. I think that's like the modern question, the gaming well, question. The the best part of Battlefield <laughs> One was the single player, the war stories. Oh yeah, and dude. The very opening to that game was like well, it was like Call of Duty. Seen. It was like Call of Duty Two, the the World War Two one that was on Xbox, the original Xbox Three Sixty. Yeah, remember yeah, that? Yeah. That yeah. shit. That shit was ridiculous. We put it on hard mode. You die in one shot. It's fucking fantastic. Oh, it's great. Yeah. So anyway. Who else um, is playing on hard mode? Not Winston, Winston Churchill. Churchill. Not him. Fuck him. <laughs> well, he kind of is because um, one of the things that, that catches Churchill's interest is the Middle Eastern theater of the war. Because um, one of the focuses for the British is the Suez Canal and not allowing the Ottoman Empire to take it. Correct. Um, and also, to the fact... That, that Russia is not only fighting off Germany, they're also fighting off Austria-Hungary, and they're also fighting off the Turkish. Um, so because the, the Ottomans are in the south pushing into like the Caucasus region, um, they want to put pressure on the Turks um, to prevent them um, from putting their full effort against the Russians. They don't want to get in um, the Caucasus. The Caucasus. <laughs> so he, he sort of pushes for a, an invasion of the Dardanelles, which is the area at the mouth of the Black Sea, 
um, sort of where like Constantinople is and, and sort of that area, you know, between Greece and Turkey, mm-hmm. um, that would be the Dardanelles. Okay. Um, so approval is eventually given, and in March 1915, um, a an Anglo-French naval task force attempts to bombard um, the, the defenses there. Um, but a, a lot of their attacks um, on these defenses are not really that successful because, um, one, they're fortified positions, and two, um, the Germans and the Turks have heavily mined the area. Um, and the way that the water flows out of the Black Sea is it flows into the Mediterranean. So if a ship is moving into the Dardanelles from the Mediterranean, um, if you were to put mines or, or other such things in the water, they're going to drift south into the ships coming into the Dardanelles. Right. Which is exactly um, why people don't play GMT board games. <laughs> this is why... This is not illustrated enough in Hearts of Iron 4, and I'm fucking pissed about it. You need to add in these mechanics. Um, I think that's why, like, when I try to to recruit Steve to play, like, a war game, and I am a basic bitch when it comes to strategy, so I'm sitting there and I'm playing, and I, I, I can just look at Steve and know that he's, he wants to go a level deeper with these strategy games, and I'm like, I don't have it, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> um, nope. So, uh, eventually, part of the reason why they want to also attack the Dardanelles is at this time, the capital of the Ottoman Empire is Constantinople, um, which is unofficially at this time known as Istanbul. It doesn't officially become Istanbul why until Istanbul? the Republic of Turkey is created. Why'd they change it? Uh, because they, they formed the nation of Turkey, and it was you part of, You fucked it up, Steve! You fucked it up! <laughs> He's supposed to say I don't have time! <laughs> it's like, it's like Steve time. was saying... The 90s song lyrics. It was like, like Steve, it's like Steve was saying before you got here that we can't spend the whole episode talking about Winston Churchill and World War II. Like, we just don't have time. <laughs> it's too much stuff. <laughs> it's too much shit. It'll be a five-parter. Yeah, seven parts. So I, I was listening to Trial Troika, right? And fantastic podcast, by the way. I love the fact that they have trivial knowledge about the topics they discuss. Fantastic. <laughs> and anyway, I'm listening to it, and my God, there's it's like episode 37 of Winston Churchill. Uh, <laughs> He and, could be a recurring character, like our boy, uh... Trotsky. Hey, where is my keys? Hey! Yeah, yeah, we should just do a, an episode where you're Trotsky, I'll be Cuffy Megs, and Steve can be Steve. Hey, Cuffy, Cuffy, does this sound like a if, good idea? I need you to empty your pockets because, Cuffy, Cuffy, I think you have my keys. Empty your pockets, let me see. Look, I think you need I to need get to more get than a curse, uh, cursory understanding of what's in my pockets before you start suggesting. <laughs> uh, listen, 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 I am in exile. I need my keys. I need to go. <laughs> They're going to kill me. So if if the British and, and the, the Entente are, in general are able to take... The, the triple or out, the double Entente? Which one is it? <laughs> It's the triple entente at this point. Okay. Because it's Great Britain, France, and Russia. Right. Um, if they're able to take the Ottoman Empire out of the war, they will be able to secure a warm water port to bring supply um, supplies to the Russians, and they would also protect the Suez Canal. Steve, who was the third nation to join the triple entente, like, in, in order? 
I believe it was Russia. Okay, so so if I may... Technically, if technically in the war, Great Britain is the third. Because there's a joke, you know, there's the joke, which is like a girl walks to uh, walks up to a bar and orders a double entendre and the bartender gives it to her. <laughs> you know? But like you could say a girl walks up to a bar and orders a triple entendre and Russia gives it to her. See? It's a good joke. <sighs> I'm looking at Ryan right now on the cam and it's... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm Joe Rogan in a comedy club now and just failing miserably. Um, so uh, initially, the uh, naval louder. forces would would attempt to um, would attempt to take the Dardanelles in, in February of 1915, um, but were unsuccessful. Uh, mainly for the reasons I said. It, this includes like some instances where uh, a submarine like ran aground, mm-hmm. and the and the Turks just like shelled it. <laughs> from from their from their force. Isn't that submarine one hundred and one? You can't go on land. <laughs> isn't, wait, isn't that submarine one hundred and one? Like stay under fucking water. Like <laughs> yeah. Like what the fuck? Um, but bro, it's okay, bro, bro. I know what I'm doing, bro, <laughs> bro. I got this, bro. <laughs> so on on April twenty fifth of, of nineteen fifteen, um, they would begin the amphibious landing at Gallipoli. Um, so. After eight months of fighting um, in January of 1916, approximately 250,000 uh, people had died on both sides, um, and the campaign uh, was abandoned. Um, the, the forces that land, um, a majority of them being Anzac forces, um, Australian and New Zealand soldiers, um, they're unable to really get up the hills. They're not really prepared for the spirited defense of, um, of Gallipoli. Um. um so did you just say that a quarter of a million people died, and then they just kind of said, "Meh, we're done. We're, we're, we're out, out of here." Hey, really? I, um, I just wanna, I just wanna interrupt the whole podcast to say that Italy just won Eurovision. So just, just saying, just throwing that out there. <laughs> no one cares <laughs> about your bullshit singing competition. <laughs> oh man. So. After um, after this battle, it's considered to be, like, the greatest Ottoman victory of the war. Possibly, like, the only great Ottoman victory of the war. Um, and this sort of goes on um, to sort of, like, prop up the Ottoman Empire longer and, and sort of be, like, this nationalist sticking point for them. Um, that they were able to, to sort of defend the motherland against these, these forces that were invading them. And also, the hero of this battle... Um, the commanding general of the defense, uh, Mustafa Kemal, would eventually become Mustafa Kemal or Kemal Atatürk. I was going to say we've um, heard that name before, haven't we? Yeah. Yes. Um, so he he becomes um, he, he sort of becomes a, a legend for his defense of this invasion, um, which leads him to becoming the leader of sort of the Turkish resistance to um, the Allies. In, in sort of their attempted occupation and partition of Turkey. Because originally, after the war was over, like, part of Turkey was supposed to go to Greece and there was a bunch of other things. Wow. Um, but Ataturk comes out as this uh, leader of the Turkish War of Independence and eventually becomes, like, the dictator father of modern Turkey. Oh, interesting. I never knew all that. I like it. Because Ataturk is a title. It means, like, father of Turk. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not yeah. his name. Yeah, it was his 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 name is uh, Mustafa Kemal. I think there's some like longer parts of like 
where where he's from and like his like his father's like family or whatever. Yeah. But, but that's generally what he's referred to as. Ataturk Ivanovich. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and, and this is also like a sticking point for Australia and New Zealand, um, and sort of creating their national consciousness because they sort of realize as a nation that the British are never really going to consider them as equals. So they need to forge their own path to being like independent nations. Because because there was sort of a, a a sort of a dream and ideal that eventually you know that members of the Commonwealth you know like Great Britain or that like. New Zealand, Australia would be considered as equals to Great Britain, you know, but but the British would never consider them that, and they would just continue to be cannon fodder um, in these wars for Great Britain. So they begin to sort of begin their their sort of national independence from these events. Right, because Britain okay. Britain was a nationalist wasteland anyway. So, um, so because of this, um, Churchill, as as being one of like the notable members of of this sort of planning of this operation, its biggest proponent, um, he's considered responsible for it. Okay. Um, so so again, um, he's given um, personal responsibility for it, um, and in May of that year, um, Lord Asquith is is sort of forced to form a, a coalition all party government um, during the war. Um, in order to to sort of bolster national unity, uh, unity. Um, and one of the uh, one of the the conditions put forward by the Conservative Party was that Churchill had to be removed from the Admiralty. Oh, word. Um, so Churchill and and Asquith um, tried to, um, or, or Churchill tried to plead with Asquith and and the Conservative leader at that time. Um, Boner Law, um, <laughs> but it's B O N A R. Yeah, it doesn't Boner. matter how it's spelled it's for fuck's sake. Boner. His name's Boner Law. <laughs> uh, my name um, is Boner Law. Hi, I'm uh, I'm Boner Law, and this is my father, Dick Army. <laughs> so he was um, he he was forced to be demoted to becoming the Chancellor of the Duchy uh, of Lancaster. <laughs> The worst in November position. In November twenty fifth of nineteen fifteen, um, Churchill would resign from the government, mm-hmm. um, though he would uh, remain an MP, um, and he would also propose that he be appointed Governor General of British East Africa. But this was um, denied. November twenty fifth, nineteen what? Fifteen. Fifteen. Man, jumping around. All right. Um, so, so Churchill, um, he decides to join the army. Um, and he's attached to the uh, the second Grenadier uh, Guards on the Western Front. Um, he's in his thirties, right? In nineteen fifteen, he's in his forties. Oh wow! So he just, he's forty one. Well, the standards weren't the same either, so he could just up and join the military, right? Well, he's a he's an officer. He was already in the army, so, so he re- him coming in. He just like recommissioned. Him coming in as an officer, he's just getting his commission. Essentially. Oh, okay, yeah, I got you. I got you. Um, so. In January of 1916, he was tempor- uh, temporarily promoted to lieutenant colonel and given command of the 6th Royal Scots Fusiliers. Steve, don't get mad at me, but why did he do that? Did he just was he just sick of politics? He, yeah, he was just yeah. tired. Um, he he was just tired of um, just dealing with everything. I'll tell you what, I feel that I feel like that at a very 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 micro level at work sometimes where I'm like, someone just give me a ticket where I fix a printer. Like I don't want to deal with the politics of a, like the owner of a company, you know, 
raising a fuss because we didn't call him back within 13 seconds. You know, like crazy <laughs> shit like that where it's like, you know, you're, you're in like a management management role and you kind of just want to go back to like some kind of job that's maybe more natural for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so after, after sort of training, uh, the battalion is sent to the Belgian front. Um, and there, um, for over three months, they, they just sort of like hang out in the trenches facing uh, continual shelling from the Germans, but no actual um, offensive from them. Hmm. Um, at, at one point, Churchill is, is nearly uh, killed um, uh, during a shelling um, when his uh, cousin, the Ninth Duke of, of Marlborough, um, is visiting the camp um, and, and a piece of shrapnel uh, falls between them. Like... I'm assuming a, a, a sizable one. Yeah, not like yeah a enough that would have killed them if they it had hit one of them. Good. Oh shit! Lord. Okay. Okay. Um, so eventually, in May of that year, the the sixth uh, Royal Scots Fusiliers are merged into the fifteenth division, um, and Churchill, um, because he loses his command, doesn't request a new one, um, and he secures permission to leave active service. So in a year, he was like. Nope. <laughs> he said Nope, Jesus. I'm out. Seventy threes, I'm offline. This is Winston Churchill, Great Britain Ham Radio, signing off. signing off. So he he goes back to the House of Commons, because um, he's still an MP while he's in the while he's in the army. Um, he he'll speak out there uh, um, on war issues. Um, he calls for um, ex- uh, conscription to be extended to the Irish. Um, the Irish have been excluded from conscription um, due to the fact, you know, that they're actively rebelling by this point. Yeah, bro, um, go fuck yourself. <laughs> and, uh, and now, he, listen, now see here, you Irish little hooligan. Uh, you <laughs> man, are that's now under conscription to the Queen's crown. Hey, we'll, go fuck yourself, bro. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there, Ryan. Um, he, he, calls for, he calls for them to give greater recognition to the bravery of soldiers, um, and he also calls for the introduction of steel helmets for troops. <laughs> Wait, what? Because helmets, I believe, were made out of iron up to that point. They weren't made out of steel. God, can you imagine how heavy those fucking things were? Holy shit, a helmet made out of iron? Well, it's it, like steel. It's just like a dinner plate, essentially. Because remember, it's a British helmet. It's, uh, it's, shaped okay. like a, it's shaped like a UFO. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, okay, okay. Uh, now I know what um, I'm talking about. And and he's during this period, he's very frustrated um, because he's he's not part of the government. Like in, in he's not holding an office within the government. Um, he's a backbencher, meaning he's a member of parliament who doesn't sit closer to sort of like the talking floor. Like he's not really given talking privileges, um, and that he <laughs> and that he's repeatedly um, blamed for Gallipoli. By by other conservatives, they should have kept him in. The, would you call him like the the benches, the bench back ground? benches, back benches? He should have stayed back in the in the, in the nosebleeds. Like <laughs> no. <laughs> um, eventually, Churchill would go before um, a commission that was called called the uh, called the Dardanelles Commission, um, which was sort of founded by by the government to sort of look into Gallipoli and see who was at fault. Um, and the report uh, came to place the blame on no one person. Um, that, that they essentially concluded that the whole campaign had been uh, poorly planned um, and, and executed, um, and a lot of the difficulties had been underestimated, and it mostly came down to like a clash of personalities 
that like all of the people who were involved in it were sort of at odds with each other. So they weren't able to sort of adequately deal with the challenges it required. Wow. Um, what a there were also like, oh, well, it was really complicated. Every, nobody really got along. Sorry, everybody fucked up. Well, well, you're sort of the the thing they're saying is that you're you're sort of taking it saying like no one was at fault, but they're essentially what they're saying is that everyone is at fault, which for Churchill is a win because remember the whole campaign is being blamed on him, and then he's just saying like well you know well you see it was everybody else too, so it's not Steve, just Steve. When you blame everyone, you blame no one. It's the same thing. It's kind of yeah. If you bl- if you're saying everyone was at fault, and you're saying no one was at fault then you're not putting blame on anyone. You're putting blame on the group, which means no one person has blame. And also, when you say everybody is at fault, nobody gets punished because you can't punish everybody. It's actually a very, it's a mature, like, militarily, it's a mature, like, outlook because really any military campaign is going to be spread blame. It's not one person, ultimately. You know, it's the difference between, it's, it's that whole thing where it's the difference between responsibility and accountability, you know? Yeah, but but when you're like in the royal line for like, or you're in the the noble line for like the Duke of Marlborough, like you're not gonna get in trouble for shit. Yeah, like you, you are. You, <laughs> you, you could are you could like accidentally right shoot the sir. <laughs> you could accidentally shoot the queen, and they would just say like boys boys just being boys as long as she lived. Hey, what's this? What what is the name? Okay, what is the name of the street that um, the the parliament is on, or like? Like the Downing? Queen's house, Downing. No, I think. Well, the 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 prime minister's uh, apartment is on Downing Street. It's okay, 10 so, Downing Winston, Street. so Winston Churchill is basically saying that I could shoot somebody on Downing Street and I'll still get reelected. <laughs> like that kind of bullshit. I don't. Well, he's not saying that. I'm saying that. I'm just saying, you know, that if you're to his level, like the, these people are not punished for things. Yeah, essentially, he okay. he could make mistakes without any re- yeah. repercussion at all. So again, I could shoot somebody on Downing. Not Street. the same thing this is, because Don. Ryan, because, this is just rich. This is just rich fail something. Because Donbo is not the name. He's not the the son of a lord or anything like that. Like he actually couldn't get away with it. He couldn't get away with it. He just felt that in his. I'm going to get nuanced here. He felt that within the popularity of his group, he could not be responsible for it. But there's no way that if he actually committed that act that he wouldn't be responsible for it. Whereas, like, Winston Churchill could probably go shoot somebody and be like, he was a Bolshevik. He was a Bolshevik. And then they would be like, he certainly was. According to this document we just found, he was a Bolshevik. And he'd be fine. Wait, I thought we were cosplaying uh, England, not Israel. That's true. Um, in, in October of 1916... Steve's like, we don't have time. Um... um yeah, and you, and then you, and then Steve will complain like, you know, the episode was a bit long, Steve. You know, you need to, you need to keep these things short. I said like the the thing is, is either we do two hours, an hour and a half to two hours easily, or we just don't cover ninety percent of the stuff we cover. So I'm okay with it. Like it just is, it um, is what it is. We, you know. So in in October of 1916, um, Asquith resigns as prime minister, um, and he's succeeded by Lloyd George, um, who, who has in, two first names. In, who sends who sends Churchill um, to, uh, to, um, to France to inspect the war effort there in May of 1917. Um, in July of 1917, Churchill is appointed Minister of Munitions. Minister of Munitions. This guy has more titles than anybody. You're in charge of bullets. 
That's what you're in charge of. <laughs> well, he, he moves from one job to another job. So his, his, it's not really like a title per se. It's his job. Right. But it's like, like it's he, like he's his... not still the minister of the navy. Like that's his job. It's like being secretary of the the treasury. Isn't like being minister of the munitions like Tony Soprano working for the uh, garbage company? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 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 He just sits in an office Look, and then you got the you got a title the over there, Barone Sanitation. Show up once in a while. Bang the secretary. She's a born again Christian. <laughs> really. <laughs> um. And and during his time as uh, Ministry of the Munitions, um, he he ends a strike um, um, in in Great Britain um, in munitions factories um, and is able to increase uh, munition production after negotiating with the strikers. Um, and in June of 1918, um, he ends a second strike by threatening to conscript the strikers into the army. What he he essentially tells the 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 men working in the munitions factories. Like, if they're not going to work, like, if they're going to strike, he'll have them uh, conscripted and put into the army. No, fuck no, because I'm the one making the bullets. If I'm not making the bullets, nobody's making the bullets, and you're not going to send me to the army with no goddamn bullets. Like, that's well, not... <laughs> it's, he's successful, and he's able to stop the strike. Yeah, because, again, I'm not going to war if I know I'm the one making the bullets, and all of a sudden I get conscripted. Now nobody's making bullets. And there's well, no there, bullets for me. Well, it's also the thing that there's other people, because um, you'll you'll come to find out. Which when we talk about it, there are um, there there are unemployed people from the the British Army who who come back and who are demobilized. Um, but don't worry, they find a purpose for them. Um, so in in 1918, um, he Churchill supports the uh, the representation of the People Act, um, which gave British women the right to vote, um, and in um, and after that, after the war is over, um, a, a general election is called. Was he for uh, that? Was he was he? Yeah, misogynist? he was for the. He was for the represent. He supported the representation of the people. Act. Good, fantastic. Okay. Like, wait, um, is this colloquially known as the John Morgan Act? <laughs> the Morgan and Morgan the Act. Morgan and Morgan and Morgan Act. <laughs> uh, we don't have time to mention all the Morgans. <laughs> Sorry. So. So after the war is over, um, Lloyd George calls a general election, um, and voting for this election starts on uh, Saturday, December 14th, 1918. Um, when Churchill uh, campaigns, he calls for the nationalization of the railways, um, uh, a control on monopolies, um, tax reform, and the creation of a League of Nations to prevent uh, future wars. He would, um, he would eventually uh, return to Parliament as an MP for... Uh, the seat of Dundee, um, and uh, even though the Conservatives won a majority, um, Lloyd George, who was a Liberal, was able to retain uh, being Prime Minister. Hmm. Wait, um, wait, what year was in, that? That's nineteen eighteen. Okay. Post World War One so or yeah, it's like I said because the war was over. They called a general election. Okay. Um, so he in, was a globalist. As Alex Jones would say, Shut the because fuck he wanted up. to create the League of Nations, huh? That's um, what in, I hear. In January of, of 1919, um, Lloyd George would have uh, Churchill move to the War Office and be both the Secretary of State for War and the Secretary of State for Air. Now, were Lloyd Braun and Churchill were they uh, were they in cahoots? Well, they're from the same political party. But are they some, from the same school? 
I don't know about that. Like how, I like, believe Lloyd George is older than. What I'm asking Churchill. is, is this a House of Cards relationship that he has with him? <laughs> I don't think he's fucking him like the uh, like the Secret Service agent or whatever. I don't think he had a three way with him. Oh man! <laughs> although although Churchill apparently liked to like walk around naked, I guess. Ew! 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 Fuck! Ew! Gross! Um. So. Oh, so fuck no. So Churchill. That is um, awkward. He, That's so, like some Aleister Crowley level shit right there. Like, well, no, it's like Benjamin Franklin used to do that. You know, at home, he's not doing it at public. No, he he's did it in it Philadelphia, dude. He, they still do it to this day. <laughs> they still do it in Philly every year. Some guy in Philadelphia just walks around nude and they ask him, "What the fuck are you thinking?" He's like, "I'm Benjamin Franklin." <laughs> <laughs> it's just that it's just that guy on the train in, in Seinfeld. Yeah, exactly. The guy with the newspaper where Jerry's just talking yeah, to him. Like, yeah. He's like, Can I get the sports page? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> um so, so because Churchill is is uh, is uh because um because Churchill is Secretary of State for War. I gotta um, mute my mic. Of, He's responsible for the demobilizing of the British Army, um, though he is though he does um, convince the the Prime Minister to keep um, a million conscripted men um, within the British Army of the Rhine, which is the British contingent of the armies that are occupying the Rhineland region of Germany. Um, uh, those those troops will stay in um, not the not these troops that are conscripted, but the Army of the Rhine will stay in the Rhineland region until 1929. Yeah. Um so it's a, uh, it's Churchill, a little it's a little long. It's a little long. Well, it was it was part of the peacekeeping operation. No, I mean I uh, the, I understand that. Uh but it's still it's like, you know. I don't I don't think Germany really got a, a fair deal after World War 1. I. I mean, they they really oh, like no. they never well, let The problem is is you you had to shit on them because of what happened, but you you also had to let up at some point and they just fucking did not. Well, no, well, that's no. what that's what Churchill um, Churchill believed as well because he he opposed harsh measures against the Germans, um, and he also uh, cautioned against them demobilizing the German army um, because he was worried about um, the Soviet Union um, because he was right. afraid um, that the Soviet Union would move and like begin to like attack the rest of Europe. So he wanted to keep the German army in the state that it was. In order to oppose the Soviet Union, yeah, he was, um, he think, was very much, he was thinking strategically. Yes, and he's he was very much opposed to um, the Communist Party, um, obviously, um, and also to the Soviet Union. And he also wanted um, British troops to um, assist the Whites in the Russian Civil War, um, but they eventually had to. And he recognized this that they eventually had to bring the troops home because the British people weren't uh, supportive of these measures. So. Um, for those that don't know, um, both uh, Great Britain, the United States, and a number of other powers, uh, such as Japan, um, fought in the Russian Civil War against the communists. Yep. Um, so after after the Soviets win the Russian Civil War, um, Churchill uh, wants to create a, a cordon sanitaire around the country, which is ironic because um, eventually Churchill will accuse... That's French the, for sanitary cordon. 
<laughs> okay, yes. I was like, what the fuck is a cordon sitting It's a here? wall it, of It's just an area of control around it, like an area that, that separates them from the rest of Europe. There's no okay. shit in that corridor. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Um, so during the Irish War of Independence, um, he would be um, supportive of the British using uh, the black and tans um, to combat um, Irish revolutionaries. For those who are unfamiliar with them, the black and tans are not um, like an actual like official police or military unit. Um, it's not there's a fucking drink either, you assholes. They're they're a uh, like, they're like I've a paramilitary. Yanglings Brewery. <laughs> They they're like a, a paramilitary like militia group created by the uh, British government to act as like an um, auxiliary group to the constables of the Royal Irish Constabulary who are like they're fucking the, terrorists, the dude. Yes, they're terrorists. Yeah. Long story short, um, they are people that are paid by the British Brian, government to wear. I'm sorry, not Brian. Terrorize the people of Ireland. Ryan, I just want to let sure. you know I've only seen two blackened hands in my entire life. One was at a store in the freezer, you know, so I could buy the beer. The other, every other black and tan I've ever seen has been a can in the street in the gutter, which I thought you might, I thought you might like, I thought you might like that, you know? (laughs) Either they were fresh, either they were fresh or they were dead. (laughs) Well, they're also, they're they're also cheap cigarellos. Um, yeah, I used to get. But you might wild. as well you might as well just get a Swisher Sweet. Yeah, you know? I like I smoked Black and Milds for probably three years. Ew. And uh, I love the smell of it. I just I love the smell of it. And uh, I had quit cigarettes for a long time, and and I was just like, you know what? I don't want to go back to cigarettes, but let me smoke like cigarellos. You know, like some cigarellos, like something small, like a small cigar. I don't want to get into big cigars. But uh, from somebody who smoked a uh, hand rolled cigarette top to back. Yeah, I had friends. I had fucking friends like you, man. Fuck You're that, disgusting. dude. There's no way I'm um, rolling my cigarettes every day. So Fuck that. So for you two, like, are I'm fucking Tom the, from the Tom black and Jerry. Tans. Um, but but the black and tans are also kind of like one step below, like a death squad, like. The they, they essentially they are what the fuck they are a death squad. Well, not Tread not to the level Ford. of like. <laughs> well, I, I say they're not a death squad to the level of like to the heights that death squads have been taken to. It's like somebody saying like they're they're like a professional like player when they only played in like the minor leagues. Like while they were incredibly brutal, you know, doing uh, reprisal attacks, extrajudicial killings, um, looting, and arson. Like it's it's not like you know like they were Einsatz group and just like you know, like filling mass graves full of full of people. I shouldn't laugh, but yeah, like comparing most, them to Einsatz group the people, is a good one. Because most of the people who carried out the Holocaust at the at like the the soldier shooting phase weren't actually soldiers; they were police officers from Germany who were sort of set up by the German government to be police in that area, and they just said like your job now is you gotta you gotta shoot all these Jews. Oh my god! <laughs> um, and the the black and tans themselves were mostly um, former British soldiers who were unemployed, um, just just sort of like soldiers from lower income backgrounds who were conscripted into the army. Um, after they came back from the war, there weren't really any options for them. Um, a lot of them were probably like broken, um, sort of by the war. 
Um, so you can understand yeah, where it's they going. And, by the Irish. Let's get let's get real. <laughs> well, well, before they got to the Irish, you know, they had already been sort of like traumatized and brutalized by the war to the point that they themselves become brutalizers. Which, which is a lot of the times that would happen, sort of like when we talked about like uh, the Frey Corps, is that like the Frey Corps were like old German veterans who had fought in the war, so they're already like fucked up killing machines from the war. So when you just loose them on like a civilian population, they're just going to start shooting like all the people they don't like. Yeah, well, I mean that's what you do, right? I mean you don't shoot people you like, Steve. Because I mean don't condemn the bat, them like, for shooting 90... people they don't like. I mean that's the only people you shoot. Ninety ninety two percent of the black and tans were um, from parts of the United Kingdom other than Ireland, um, and eight percent of them were Irishmen. Well, you know what they say about statistics over ninety percent, right? <laughs> They're wrong. Um, so um, uh, during uh, during sort of uprisings in in Iraq. Um, against Kurdish rebels. There. What the fuck are we um, talking about? I go to get a beer. We're talking about Iraq now. That's fucking Churchill, yeah, Steve. It's all, it's all the empire, Steve. I, Iraq has been along for more than, or been around for since more. I thought than, it only existed like, since the nineties. I thought it existed since like Schwartz. Yeah, it only it only existed for as long as Steve watched the cool bombing footage on CNN and collected Gulf War trading cards. Hey man, I remember. His first edition, Storm and Norman, called. Hey, oh, man. Colin Powell, Rookie of the Year. You know, the only thing I ever thought about uh, when it comes to that shit is that the the name Schwarzkopf is, is a fucking amazing name. Like, it's a great oh, military name, right? It's incredible. Yeah, like, I'd sal- remember, I'm not even in the military, talk- and I'd salute him. There was a strong six months when I was a senior in high school where I considered joining the military. And uh, just just so I didn't have to pay for college, I probably would have been better off. But at the same time, like, <laughs> uh, I remember one of the things I was thinking about, I said to a guy at some time, I was like, yeah, but what if, what about Schwarzkopf? That's a great name. <laughs> like, Listen, dumbest if you, reason. If your name... If your name is Norman Schwarzkopf, you're going to be one of two things. You are either going to be six foot four, three hundred pounds right. of solid muscle with right. a chiseled jaw it could be that a... could destroy you with a stare, right. or else you are a hundred and twelve pounds soaking wet, not one bit of muscle right. on you, cheese eater, who, who gets blown away by a stiff breeze. Well, that's that's kind of what happened to Norman because remember his father was a general as well. Yeah. His father was also like the father of like one of the fathers of like modern police work with Spentley Butler. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that like Nor- Norman Schwarzkopf used to get bullied at the at the academy because his father had like a radio show about like about like crime fighting, like about like sort of like the Untouchables type stuff. By the way, I'd like yeah. to and, like, I'd like to interrupt Steve. And here. they would like <laughs> they would shit on him and like make him read like excerpts from the from the episodes or whatever. <laughs> By the way, I'd like to, I'd like to just uh, add to Steve's comment there instead of interrupting him and just say that we have an episode on Smedley Butler. It's fantastic. I don't know what number Excellent it is, episode. but uh, it's good. Good episode. Um. So so back to Iraq. Um, the the British have been occupying northern Iraq, um, and during this occupation, you know, the the Kurds had been have been fighting for their independence, um, and Churchill during this time authorizes two squadrons of of planes in the areas, um. To um, episode nine, by the way, God, <laughs> to, to attack these Kurds, and he had proposed um, that they be equipped with mustard gas, 
in order oh. to quote unquote inflict punishment upon recalcitrant uh, natives without inflicting grave injury upon them. I get mustard what? gas every time I go to the Willow Tree Cafe in Sanford, Florida. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but eventually, uh, but eventually they would see uh, Great Britain would um, would would sort of see that the occupation of Northern Iraq was a drain on Great Britain, um, and that. Churchill had proposed unsuccessfully that the government um, should hand over control um, to Turkey because Turkey had originally controlled it and they had taken it over. Um, but that, that didn't happen. I mean, I feel like it's a hard sell, right? Yeah, it's gotta be. Um, so Steve, Churchill I was asking you a question. The, like, I feel like it's a hard sell. What do you, well, yeah, eventually, eventually they put in a, a, a monarch like they do in Jordan and Egypt um, who they control. Okay, so it's more fucking goddamn they, they put empire. In, they put in a Hashemite. It's more empire. They, they put in a, yeah, they put in a Hashemite king to like sort of run the country. Okay, okay. Yeah, that, that um, makes sense for their MO. So in, in February of 1921, um, Churchill becomes Secretary of State for the colonies. Uh, and um, he would be involved in negotiations um, soon after this with Sinn Féin. Um, for the for the drafting of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, um, he um, and, and while he was um, Secretary of State for the Colonies, um, he would um, he would sort of uh, be involved in the installation um, of King Faisal of um, Iraq. King Faisal um, and his huh. and King and Faisal. his um, King Faisal. <laughs> King Faisal, his, uh, King Pfizer of White Plains, New Jersey, and his uh, and his brother King Abdullah uh, the first of Jordan, um, of them becoming kings of those um, of those countries, um, because it would reduce the cost of Great Britain occupying the Middle East. Um, Churchill himself would travel to uh, the Mandate of Palestine, um, where he would be a supporter of Zionism. Ah, um, get and, fucked. And would refuse. Um, um, and re- refuse a, an, a petition by the Arab-Palestinian residents of the, the mandate um, to prevent uh, or to prohibit Jewish migration to Palestine. Um, so he refuses the Palestinians' urges to stop, or I'm sorry, to disallow Jewish people from Palestine. Well, to prohibit, to limit, because what's happening is is that all of these... Um, Wait, what fucking sort of like, year are we at? 1921. 1921. But Palestine didn't even so, come around to like 48, right? Israel. No, no. Palestine. Palestine's existed since. That's the Roman name of the area. I, it's I been, know that. It's been Palestine. It's been Palestine since the time of Jesus. Israel um, was 1948. So, is referring to it as Palestine in like a uh, political arena. Was it done then? Yeah, because it's, yeah. it's it's. But it's, was that like it, just ref- the mandate of Palestine? But just referring to it yeah. as Palestine. Was that a was that normalized back then, or was it not an issue until yes. Israel? Well, came yes, about? because because Israel doesn't exist. Israel That's is just a Zionist pipe dream at this point. Okay, okay, so so the Zionists yeah. existed as of the late 1910s. Then, yes, yeah, Zionism sort of comes about in the late 1800s after okay. sort of the the Dreyfus affair is like an instituting thing of like pushing Zionism. As a political movement, I knew this guy named Dreyfus um, who was a crackhead. It was hilarious, but anyway, Richard? But, no, not Richard Dreyfus. But but at this and Richard time, Richard Dreyfus. Um, 
Palestine is predominantly um, Arab. Um, so what what happens is is that these these Zionist groups are sort of fundraising and bringing in Jewish settlers from outside of the region. Okay. Um, so most of these settlers they're they're Ashkenazi. And what year is this? Um, this is in 1921. 1921. They're already bringing in Ashkenazi Jews. And before before 1921. Before this 1921, is, this is they're already bringing in Ashkenazi uh, Jews. Yeah, they're bringing in they're bringing in Jews from elsewhere. Um, and they're coming in, and the Palestinians don't like it because a lot of these groups um, are also um, becoming like very militant. Um, and and this is one of the things that like Israel sort of glosses over or doesn't talk about with its history, is that there were just as many Jewish terrorist groups as there were um, Arab Palestinian groups um, before 1948. Uh, most of those terrorist groups went in to form the IDF. Wow. And I'll say now the largest terrorist group in the Middle East is known as the IDF. Like, like you have groups like the Ergun, like they're bombing hotels, um, and these bombing campaigns sort of ramp up, you know, in the post-war era. Yeah. Um, but at this time in 1921, um, there are riots in in, in Jaffa, um, and what happens is, is that um, two Jewish groups um, sort of come to clash um, in the city, and these these attacks eventually spill over into sort of like Arab communities and then the Arabs move to attack the Jews and it causes these like big riots. Um, and, and it essentially comes down that you have certain Zionist groups that are uh, Marxist in, in their leanings and you have some that aren't. Um, and, and then these sort of Arabs are just sort of mad because, you know, these these sort of like, um, the, these groups are like, like rioting in their neighborhood and they go to riot against them and it just turns into this big thing. Um, and it, it sort of spills out of Jaffa into the rest of the country. Um, at, the, at the end of the riot, 47 Jews and 48 Arabs die, um, and 46 Jews and 73 Arabs are wounded. Um, in October of 1922, um, Churchill would undergo an operation for uh, appendicitis, um, but while he's in the hospital, um, the conservatives would withdraw from their coalition with Lloyd George's um, government, um, which would cause uh, the November 1922 general election. Uh, during this election, Churchill loses his seat. Um, <laughs> <Get> Churchill, <laughs> Churchill would later write of this event uh, saying, quote unquote, without an office, without a seat, without a party and without an appendix. Good. Be miserable. Um, though, though, despite this, um, he was still um, elevated as one of the 50 Companions of Honor um, by Lloyd George in his 1922 Dissolutions Honors list. I feel like Lloyd George was like, you know, his his, uh, his like buddy, you know what I mean? Like, just, I'm not saying that, I don't think Churchill was incompetent at all, but I'm just saying, like, I feel like Lloyd George was basically just holding his foot up every once in a while and be like, yeah, well, I don't, go ahead and jump in I don't, I don't. I don't know about that. I just think it's like, like for instance, like Barack Obama and like Joe Biden, like they didn't really have a relationship None. outside of like being in the government together. I think they and, admit like, that, right? Didn't they admit that? Yeah, pretty pretty much. But I, I believe that's the same with Churchill and Lloyd George because Churchill eventually, remember, in nineteen twenty four, goes back to the Conservative Party because the Liberal Party is pretty much dead by that point. Now, I'm not going to jump ahead, but I would like to make I would like to make sure we address that because I think that's important. 
Um, I think he so, does. I think he uh, does it for political reasons, not not for ideological well, reasons. Well, yeah, because he doesn't have he doesn't have a political party. You can't you can't say you know you're a member like you're a one man party. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can. No, you well, can. Well, you can you'd lose. be Bernie Sanders for fucking forty years. You know what I mean? Like Bernie Sanders is amazing as a politician because he's had the same message. He's been on brand for forty fucking years. Like you can pretty much predict his position on any issue. You know it, and I tend to agree with him. But oh, you yeah. know, um, you oh, know yeah. his p- p- position on an issue. But that's the reason he never gets anywhere because he has one position, and it doesn't match with the popularity of the party. So yeah, yeah. Um, so eventually, um, Churchill would uh, he would spend the next six months in uh, Villa Rive d'Or um, uh, in in Cannes. Um, and he would um, spend most of his time uh, painting. Himself was like a prolific um, sort of amateur painter, um, and he would write his uh, his memoir. Um, his um, his first memoir is called The World Crisis, um, and it was published uh, the first volume, of which was published in 1923, um, and the rest of the volumes will be published over the next ten years, um, finishing in 1931. Is the world crisis where he wrote about India? Um, the the world crisis is mostly him writing about uh, his up until like nineteen thirty one. Okay. Um, so it's just sort of like him talking about uh, World War One is is most of it, and then the last two volumes is sort of like after the war. I feel like we're gonna get then, to that in next episode. <laughs> ah, okay. Um. So yeah, the the Great Bengal Famine isn't until the forties. Um. So. Ugh. So after the, so after the the twenty three uh, the the nineteen twenty three general election is called, um, seven of seven liberal associates asked Churchill to stand as their candidate, um, and he selected to run um, for Leicester uh, West seat, um, but he didn't win the seat. Um, during this time, a Labour government under uh, Ramsay Macdonald takes power. Um, Churchill had hoped um, that. Uh, they would be defeated by by a conservative liberal coalition, um, but that didn't really happen. Um, he was very opposed to McDonald's government, um, and they had uh, and their government's decision to loan money um, to the Soviet Union, uh, and he feared that they would eventually sign an Anglo-Soviet treaty. Well, I mean, I support the McDonald's government, specifically the position of the ten-piece nugget being cheaper i don't know ryan i think i think the more important position of the mcdonald government was oh the doodah day you know <laughs> the one thing i do not support about the mcdonald's government is the purposeful uh breaking or the planned obsolescence of the ice cream machines in this essay i will <laughs> I, I would also say with the mcdonald's ice cream machine it, it doesn't have a built-in obsolescence the, it being quote unquote broken down is just like a, a thing they say because it has to um, sort of like defrost. For yeah, there's an article about that. Yeah, yeah, he's and right. That, they they just tell you they just tell you it's broken because the machine isn't. Dude, there's a medium article about it, and it it basically is the problem is that the the ice cream machine at McDonald's is made by one company, and they've been making it for like forever. Like since it's, and you are not allowed to have it repaired. It's right? it's incredibly complicated and easy to break, and then once it's broken, unless someone there knows how to fix it, they can't fix it. So they don't. 
but it, Steve, it's, Steve's right too. Like, there's also like this incredible downtime cycle it needs to get back up to running, and because uh, it's not it's not designed to run 24 hours, which is why it's why it's become a thing. Right. Is because you know McDonald's used to have normal hours, but now that they're a 24 seven restaurant. You know, they, they it has no downtime really, so they have to make an artificial downtime. So kind of like exposed it, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there was um, a video. I want to say Vice did a video where it's like half that, and it's half you can't have anybody but the manufacturer repair it. And the yeah, which is which is in, normal. Like, like repair cost is insane. Let me tell you something. I work in IT, and the majority of companies in IT make money on their repair contracts. Not yeah, that's on like that's like Xerox and like every other company that makes large sort of machines like that it's incredibly common so remember how i said that like if you ran as an independent you would you would probably lose um because on march 19th of 1924 um churchill runs as an independent um as an anti-socialist candidate um for the seat of uh, westminster abbey um but was defeated this was in 1924 yeah um and in may of 1924 um he would go to liver uh liverpool where he would address a conservative meeting um, and that he would declare that there was no longer a place for him in the Liberal Party. Um, he, he said that the Liberals must, uh, must back the Conservatives to stop labor um, and to, quote-unquote, um, uh, for the successful defeat of socialism. Um, I just want to ask a that, real quick question here because we've been talking a lot about all this guy's um, honorary mentions, his participation trophies, his uh, minister of munitions and his secretary of state for the colonies and the, all this shit that he's been getting, right? The, these positions. D does any of them mean anything? Or is well, this yeah, he's, he's determining policy. It's like when, when you joke that like he's the guy just like quite like he's just the Tony Soprano, like just collecting a check for not showing up. Like he's actually determining policy. This is like this is like him being like Secretary of Transportation. He's the person who's deciding, you know, like what they're going to focus their efforts on. He still has to answer to the Prime Minister, but he's he's still the one determining things. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, so okay. these are these are real positions. Like these these are the equivalents of like being like Secretary of the Treasury or whatever. Okay. Wow. Um, so in in July of 1924, um, under um, Conservative leader Stanley Baldwin. Um, he's selected as the conser as a conservative candidate for the uh, the next general election, which is held in October of 1924. So, um, what is the position that he's running for this time? It would be an MP. Okay. You don't you don't run for a cabinet position. You're given a cabinet position. You have to be an MP, and then you're sort of given it. Oh. It's like you it's like you can't be Speaker of the House unless you're in the House. Okay. So, in in the same way that like. A president chooses his cabinet. In, in the UK, when a prime minister chooses their cabinet, the cabinet is composed of all people who are in parliament. So they're all elected officials. Okay. All right. Um, so um, Churchill, he'll, he'll run for the seat at Epping. Um, and, and during that time, he would describe himself as a constitutionalist. Um, so the conservatives are successful in the election, um, and Baldwin forms a new government. Um, even though Churchill doesn't really have a background in finance, um, Baldwin appoints him as the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, the Exchequer is like the, um, it's, it's kind of a combination of like the Secretary of the Treasury and the Secretary of Labor. It, it's kind of hard to describe what it is, um, but he sort of controls like those two areas. 
Okay. Um, I really feel like all British like offices and positions are just made up at this point. Like, <laughs> so, so as the exchequer, um, he he begins office on um, November sixth, nineteen twenty four, and during that time, he formally joins the Conservative Party. Um, and while um, he during his time as the exchequer, he he sort of um, wishes to pursue you know free trade principles, um, and sort of introduce. Um, laissez-faire economics. Um, and in April of 1925, um, he uh, reluctantly uh, restores the gold, uh, the gold standard to Great Britain um, and, um, to what its original 1914 uh, parody had been um, against the advice of, of leading economists, um, including one uh, future superstar, um, John Maynard Keynes. Why does that name sound familiar? The the founder of Keynesian economics, essentially like the New Deal. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Um, so the return to gold, um, it causes a extreme deflation um, and results in a lot of unemployment, um, which has a devastating impact on the coal industry. Um, and and so um, and, and during that time, uh, Churchill presents five different budgets um, in, in April of nineteen twenty nine. Um, so among the measures that, that he um, champions are the reduction of the state pension age from 70 to 65, um, immediate provisions um, uh, for widows' pensions, um, reduction of military expenditure, um, income tax reductions, and an imposition of taxes on luxury items. Why does he have such good ideas right now? He, he has some good ideas and he has some bad ideas like the gold standard one. Yeah. Um, but he generally he generally is one of those people where he says that like that he's socially he's socially liberal but fiscally conservative. That's just and uh, and a lot I of these things that's with, a cop out, but okay. Yeah, but it, which which it is for him, but but it's one of those things where like a lot of the things that are like presented as being like liberal are just sort of like common sense ideas. Like if you're not at war, you you, you should reduce military expenditure. Yeah. Um, okay. And. But like income tax reduction, like that probably isn't, isn't that isn't that great. Um, but like a tax on luxury items is. Yeah, and um, uh, a reduction of the pension age. Yeah, because um, because seventy is because like, yeah. seventy is is way too old, especially for that time period. Yeah. Um. So, during because because like one of the reasons why the age of retirement in the United States is like nineteen sixty is sixty five years old. Because by the time you're 65 in like 1933 or whatever, you're dead. Like, yeah, you're you're you're, you're already you're already on death's door. So like, knock knock knocking on heaven's door. So basically, we can expect them to come out with an amendment to the age for social security in this country to be 90 pretty soon. Then, right? Well, no, it it, it already progressively goes up. Like, I think my dad's age of retirement is like 67. Like for different oh, individuals, it, it goes up. Aww. Like like for different groups, um, so uh, for for social security, not for like retirement benefits from your own like employer, uh, but you have to remember during this time period in Great Britain there is no minimum wage, like like there is there there is yeah, nothing like that, yeah. and this comes up in the coal industry because remember um, during the war you know coal is a big business, but as you know the the value of the pound is uh, um, is deflating, um, and coal isn't as much in value, the wages of coal workers are going down. Because there's no floor his, to the history of all men, the, va- the yeah, value the of way- our pound is going down. <laughs> um, 
So as the value of the pound is, is sort of like decreasing, um, the employers of coal miners are lowering their wages progressively. Um, so coal Doesn't miners are going to get into a situation where they can't, um, <laughs> or I guess, regress. Uh, um, you're right, they are progressively lowering it. <laughs> Don't listen to Steve. I'm you're, just you're using words. <laughs> so this eventually leads to what's called the General Strike of 1926. Um, and during this time, uh, Churchill is the editor of the British Gazette. We need more strikes. Um, which is the which is the British government's anti-strike propaganda newspaper? Nah, we need more strikes. Mm-hmm. Um, this strike was called by the General Council of the Trade Union Congress, uh, the TUC, um, and it was um, an attempt to force the British government to prevent wage reductions um, and the worsening conditions that were that were popping up for 1.2 million um, coal workers who were unable or coal miners who were unable to work in the mines. Mm, okay. Um, so 1.7 million uh, workers uh, went out on strike, um, especially those in other heavy industries and in transportation industries. Uh, but the government was, was sort of prepared for the strike. They knew it was coming. Um, so they enlisted uh, middle class volunteers to maintain essential services. Um, so they essentially get middle class people to come in and like scab um, to, to keep things running. Um, the, the strike eventually ends um, in, in failure for the, for the miners. Uh, but after, um, after it happens, uh, or after the strikes end, um, Churchill, um, Churchill acts as an intermediary for the striking miners and their employers. Um, and he later calls on the government to, to introduce a, a legally binding minimum wage. It's probably like the most minimum of the minimum. Yeah, but like, the idea least, that he's even he's doing trying. that. Yeah, right. Like the at least he's doing something. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, he 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 sort of opposed them, but then after he, he sort of gets to talk to them, he realizes like we do need a minimum wage. And this is one of the reasons why Churchill was not popular with like working class people in like Great Britain, especially in mining towns, because they you remember what he they, did. They would absolutely. Brian, if you know anything, minimum wage. if you know well, no, anything I've, about well, labor, you know that workers vote against themselves all the time. They don't cause, understand. Cause, cause Ryan, they don't understand. Because you're missing a key tenet of that is that he he suggested a minimum wage. He didn't get them a minimum wage. He oh, said you should give them a minimum wage. I missed wage. that too. So just, I didn't get that. So just because he says you should have a minimum wage doesn't mean, you know, he's you know he's out there in Parliament, like, fighting for it. Uh, he just says, like, yeah, you probably should give him a minimum now, wage. Now, did he know so he wasn't going to get it? Was he like, uh, was he like, uh, uh, what's the name of that fucking politician? Uh, Jeff, uh, whatever. Foxworthy. No, not Jeff Foxworthy. He's not a politician. Dunham? Uh, Fox, Jeff, Jeff Dunham? Flake, or whatever. The one who's like always like, yeah, I'm on the Democrat side. And then like, nope. Votes against them. Yeah. Well, he's not, he's not really voting on it. He's just sort of, he's oh, just recommending it. No, I, Joe Manchin's yeah, just, Joe Manchin's a Republican. Wait. Joe Manchin's not no, a fucking Joe, Democrat. No, no I know he's Democrat. a Democrat. I'm saying he's <laughs> not actually a Democrat. He votes anti-Democratic all the fucking time. He's not an actual uh, Democrat. He's a Democrat in fucking <laughs> name Joe Manchin, only. Listen, Joe, Joe Manchin's <laughs> last name is what Joe Rogan <laughs> thinks about every morning. His Manchin. He fucking, listen, Joe, Joe, Joe Manchin, <laughs> fuck Joe Manchin. He is a, the Fox News caricature of a guy who's a fucking Republican that has D by the name. Oh, my God. When he fucks up. Oh, it's just ridiculous, dude. 
um, in, in early 1927, Churchill would, would make a trip to Rome where he would meet with Mussolini, um, ah, whom, he, whom he praised for his uh, stand against Leninism. Bro, Mussolini is like the original thumb. He looks like a fucking yeah, thumb. He, really he looks like Dana White. Yeah, he really looks like Dana yeah, White. Holy he shit, does. he looks like Dana um, White. And so in the 1929 general election, um, Churchill is able to retain his seat in Epping, um, but the conservatives are defeated, um, and MacDonald is able to form his second labor government. Um, so during this time, you know, Churchill um, is, is prone to, to bouts of depression. Um, he refers to it as his black dog. Um, um, as he as he sort of comes to feel that his political talents are not being utilized um, and that times were passing by him. Um, and um, during these times, you know, he starts, he starts writing um, and he begins writing um, his work on his um, ancestor, Marlborough, his life and times, which is a four volume uh, biography on, on John Churchill, first Duke of Marlborough. Um, and it was by this time as well um, that he had developed uh, Johnny Church. a reputation as a, Duke of Marlborough. As a reputation, <laughs> as a reputation as being a heavy drinker um and that uh but but some people believe that this was sort of exaggerated uh, well i mean there uh, is that whole thing that apparently and i'm i'm skipping ahead but apparently in world war ii like when he gave the speech about uh we will never surrender or whatever that he was fucking loaded we probably it was. It's, in, it's on Everybody was loaded all the it's time It's on YouTube. Then. Yeah, exactly. It was like a water fountain, but it was fucking whiskey, you know? Um, oh, God, I'm hard. I know. So I just at, got hard, dude. Yeah, so I'm at sorry. this time, in 1929... That's how I get hard this, when this, I can't get hard. I just think about whiskey water fountains. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in 1929, this sort of begins a 10-year period about that, or that is called the wilderness period, where Churchill is sort of out of, out of power... Um, he's just an MP, um, and he's sort of watching the political goings-on of, of the UK, but he's not really that influential. 1932? 1929. Okay, sorry. Um, and eventually... Um, and, Everyone's and going to wonder where the fuck I'm getting these numbers from, and I just want to let you guys know that I'm drinking Voodoo Ranger, Captain Dynamite IPA. <laughs> I'm on my third one. That's a, that's a what, 7, 7%? Steve, I don't fuck around when I drink, bro. If I drink one day a week, it's 77 <laughs> <laughs> that's more than this this goddamn crown royal apple. This is the kind this is the kind of beer where if you drink it, if you have one, right? You cannot get in a vehicle behind the wheel. Oh, I know the Voodoo Ranger. It's delicious. It's good, right? Yeah, it's good. It was fucking bogo. I had no choice. Publix got me again. But on, yeah. But on that note and and Steve's continuing inebriation, <sighs> Man, um, we will <laughs> We will pick up the next episode talking about the the second half of sort of Churchill's well, career. I was just getting excited over hours. the World War Two years <laughs> because we don't really need to talk about Winston Churchill in World War Two for the most part because you you all know it. Yeah, and if yeah. you don't know it, there's a million sources for you to get yeah, information. Yeah, there's there's, there, there's at least like five movies that have come out in the last decade. <laughs> we'll br- we'll you brush can up the against it. Of our Facebook page, and it tells you all you need to know about Winston Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true, actually. Shit. That's it. That's all you need to know. Just look at the Facebook uh, banner photo. That that explains Winston Churchill in World War II. Anyway, I swear, next time I'll be drinking wine coolers. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. Later. <laughs>